0: Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri and Boon Wurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respect to their elders, past, present, and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed.
1: This is 3CR Breakfast. Oh, yeah. Alternative news, analysis Clap and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to late 30am.
2: You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast on the 23rd of September and welcome in the studio we have Rob and... Edwin. How, How are you? How are you, quick? <laughs>
1: good um so you remember i was talking about that tulip last week right at the end of the show um Mm -hmm. i said it was making me it was frustrating me well it popped it bloomed (laughs) exciting it's beautiful it's um i'll make it the cover photo of this week's rundown that's my second point um (laughs) it's purple and yellow and she's sensational Uh, it's been great Uh, i've been going out and looking at it every day uh that's so that's been my week (laughs) i expect like
2: nine images on instagram from like like a, a mega tile of how proud you are of this tulip.
1: That's right. Yeah, Different angles. Um, <laughs> and that does bring me to my second point. I just want to qu- have a quick shout out to our audience. Sorry, there has not been rundowns for the last few weeks. I'm going to catch up over that over the next coming weeks. Um, we've just not had the time to do it, I suppose, but we'll be we'll be chasing them back up. So all the links that I've been mentioning in previous shows will be up there for your pleasure <laughs> soon.
2: <laughs> Very soon. Yeah, mm. actually, on the topic of colors, I had a really, again, sideways thought. I was, mm. well, I was thinking it was on Friday night, and I was just like, I just want to watch. I don't know the Olympics for some reason. I just have a craving to watch Olympic openings. Okay, which was it was great. I think it was partly sparked by the Kathy Freeman documentary that came out. Mm. And there's the you know the the moment when she lit the the, the Olympic cauldron. So I wanted to watch that moment, and then I watched a few others, and I was kind of curious. I was like. Why do, like, where did the Olympic symbol come from? And I don't know, have you, I hadn't Ooh. actually know about it before, but do you know anything about it? I wouldn't.
1: Absolutely not. I thought it was like, like a different country's ring sort of thing. Like, into nah, no, no. <laughs> it's
2: not far from it. I mean, my okay. initial thought was it to be like represent five different virtues or values or something like mm. those lines that, you know, Olympians represent. It's actually the five, so the five rings represents the five continents that take part that is um the america's included as one continent not two Mm -hmm. um and then the colors from what i understand is that when it was first designed every country's flag could be made from those colours if you included a white background. Right. So it's this kind of image of unity of all the all the flags coming together, which is quite beautiful and poetic, I
1: mm. think. It, it is interesting, just, like, on that note with global governance post-World War Two, and, like, you know, the thinging, stuff of, like, the Olympics and stuff like Eurovision and the UN even, if you want to go to, like, institutions and all the um thinking that went into building the symbols or the the symbology around it they've always got interesting stories so i mean thanks for bringing up the olympics it's it's just it's interesting how like there are some really cool values of like unity behind them or or yeah that i don't know that sort of sentiment um whether it gets translated into reality is a different matter but it's interesting as a foundation
2: no absolutely and it's nice to be reminded of you know the origins of what something represents i think
1: Mm, Yeah. mm. yeah
2: um but yeah that was my little discovery of the week um a discovery yeah but i guess moving on to the show what have we got coming up oh,
1: well the focus of our today's show is actually going to be international bisexuality day because today the 23rd is actually international bisexuality day so as such we'll be having um an interview with a, an amazing 3cr broadcaster uh sally goldner who actually does the show out of the pan So I'll get to her show in a moment. But she's going to come on and discuss everything about, you know, uh, Bisexuality Day and more specifically this year's major conference that um, a band of uh, LGBT plus organizations have actually created called Stand By Us. And this conference has been running since last Friday on the 18th. And it's been day after day of just amazing seminars, workshops, lectures, parties, um, all around kind of queer issues, and I suppose, yeah, just just around this day. So Sally's going to be telling us about the week that she's just had, (laughs) which sounds pretty hectic, and more about this day. And again, talking about origins of the day, International International Bisexuality Day is actually very relatively new. It was birthed in 1999, so it's the same age as me. Mm -hmm. And it was first formalized by activists Wendy Curry, Michael Page, and Gigi Wilbur. And this is rather interesting. It was actually born out of, like, this weird combination of appreciating uh, the rock singer Freddie Mercury as well as a desire to kind of increase uh, bisexuality visibility within, you know, the larger LGBT plus community. And the day, the 23rd, you'd think, oh, maybe it symbolizes something. No, it was just Gigi, one of the creator's birthdays. (laughs) And they were just like, we just need a day to celebrate it on. That'll do. (laughs) And from it, this has been born. So uh, I thought it's it's a wonderful story to kind of or, or thing to focus around in, you know, a COVID era at the moment. Uh, and it'll be, yeah, it'll be a lot of fun. So also a big, big shout out to Sally Goldner, who is an amazing 3CR long-term broadcaster. And she
2: say, has an amazing Twitter account as well. So definitely something to follow.
1: Absolutely. Uh, and her show is... At, she co-hosts the show, um, Out of the Pan, which runs on uh, 12 o'clock, so noon on Sundays, and then repeats later throughout the week. So, yeah, that will be kind of the focus for today. We'll also be having a tram thoughts.
2: We're not on the tram, by the way, just to reiterate that. We like <laughs> we- pretend we are as, as a source of inspiration, I think.
1: I, to tell you the truth, I I think you referred to it as like a virtual tram experience a few nah. weeks ago. <laughs> it's like you, you put your Mikey on, ding ding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was saying before, Rob and I both appreciate the tram imagery and are looking forward to desperately getting back on a tram. In fact, I think I'll do the circle tram.
2: The I'm allowed to. I do miss the very comfortable seats on the tram. I have to say, it is mm. a nice feeling.
1: And you've also seen um. This is a side note. They've, have you seen the masks which have the tram mm. fabrics on them? So someone's taken, um, yeah, PTV and made like the seat coverings and stuff like that into masks and PPE. And it's just been amazing, hands down the best. Um, keeping,
2: keeping all the num tops happy.
1: <laughs> keeping all the num tops happy. So in that vein, we'll be looking at, uh, at an idea that actually I got from kind of a transient orientated facebook page about lawns and the potential for lawns to be one a classist instrument but two have the potential to be much much more so we'll be talking about that in our tram thoughts
2: wonderful well before jumping into all of that we're going to go into some alternative
3: news some folks know about
2: So into some alternative news. So this is a story coming out of Afghanistan in relation to birth certificates. So Afghanistan has now allowed mothers' names to be used on all birth certificates. And so last week, the Afghan president signed an amendment that will allow mothers' names to be included on their children's birth certificates. And so this follows a three-year campaign by human rights activists. And this amendment really marks a pretty significant moment where Previously, birth certificates could only feature the father's name. And so part of the reason be- because of this was that it was a long-standing Afghan tradition that using a woman's name brings public shame to a family. And so formerly women were only publicly referred to by their closest male relatives, whether that be their husband or their family. And this extended to being included on documents, wedding invitations, even gravestones. And so this decision is a represents a very significant advancement in gender equality within Afghanistan. And so Heather Barr, who's the co-director of the Human Rights Watch Women's Rights Division, states that if a woman's name does not appear on their ID cards or their public health records, they then sort of don't exist and they don't have legal rights. And so that makes actions like obtaining healthcare or even traveling overseas with their children becoming increasingly difficult, if not impossible. And it's also a really significant moment because it reconsiders the notion of property, which has been quite a sort of long discussed thing within uh, the culture. And so once implemented, the amend- amendment will make it compulsory now for both fathers' and mothers' names to be included on birth certificates. Now, despite the success of this, there have been some internal challenges of this change. So former Taliban figures are now arguing that this is violating traditional Islamic principles. However, Ms Barr, who's the co-director of the the Human Rights Watch, Women's Rights Division, states that there is actually nothing in Islam to suggest that a woman's name should not be used and it is not practice of other Islamic governments in the region. Um, So... Hopefully it's not something that is retracted, but it's a really great story to see from that part of the world. Um, My second story is um, coming out of Kenya, and it's to do with how for the past decade, the Kenyan Defence Forces or the KDF have been taking over pieces of communal farmland to build bases and outposts across the country. And so this communal farmland is used between lots of neighbouring farmers and properties, um, but it's being claimed with little warning and no compensation. One resident stated, quoting, that the, the military has occupied our land. They have cleared the vegetation where our livestock grazes and I fear that the next thing they'll do is evict us from our ancestral land. And so as a result, land rights activists have been calling on the government to hasten, implementing a communal land-rights policy that actually passed in 2016 and was intended to protect farmers from these kinds of events occurring. So far, some estimates have claimed that the KDF have claimed about 5,000 hectares since 2012, and this has affected more than 200,000 Indigenous people across the country. The activists also highlight that this process is a violation of the 2016 Act, which makes Indigenous communities the rightful custodians of the land on which they live on. Community elders have been trying to discuss with the KDF, but they've been consistently rejected from these. Kenya is also, in parallel to all of this, experiencing quite significant drought. And so in combination with increased land pressures, The number of clashes over pastoral land between communities has increased. And so now the KDF's involvement is escalating these tensions. Now, the reason for the KDF's involvement in these areas is because of an increasingly uh, present uh, threat in in northern Kenya, which is due to an ongoing fight between the KDF and the Somali militant group Al-Shabaab. However, many villagers are concerned that they're going to be caught up with this increased military presence. And to date, there have been farmers who've been caught in crossfires and been, uh, or there, there's worries they'll be caught up in crossfires. But to date, some farmers have already been killed by landmines on the Somali border. So it's very much a developing story and something that's, you know, it's, it's not a day-to-day story, but it's something that's definitely happening. Um, but yeah, that's my alternative news for this week. You're listening to 3CR. We're going to jump into some music.
4: a song in my head it takes its place woke up forgotten got in-
1: to renew your subscription make a donation
4: or pass on some information to a programmer
5: we can't get to the phone all the time right now but we're still here you can call us on 03 9419 8377
4: each weekday between 1 and 5 p.m and talk to a staff member
5: that's 03 9419 8377
6: 3cr community radio here to stay
7: BDS Australia is hosting an online forum featuring boycott, divestment and sanctions, BDS co-founder Omar Barghouti, on Saturday, August 29 at 7.30pm. Joining Omar will be First Nations scholars Amy McGuire and Professor Tony Birch, as well as Palestinian Australians Dr. Randa Abdel-Fattah and Ms. Hebervara. They'll be discussing the shared experience of dispossession, state-based discrimination and racism, and how to counter it. Details can be found at bdsaustralia.net.au That's bdsaustralia.net.au Boycott Divestment Sanctions BDS Australia is part of the global effort to end support for Israel's oppression of Palestinians and pressure Israel to comply with international law. More details at bdsaustralia.net.au BGS yes, Australia a is a 3CR supporter.
8: Eyes, and they say,
7: You're on In Your Face 3CR on 3CR with James, while Susie Melhotra is the Director of Programs and People at Living Positive Victoria, and I spoke with her this week.
6: I've been with the organisation Living Positive Victoria for the best part of 15 years. Um, I'd like to say that's half my life, but that's a bit of a lie. Um, no, so I've been with the organisation for a long time and seen it actually move and evolve from a very small organization to an organization of about 18 staff, where we work very much specifically with people living with HIV. So it's about supporting, educating, um, assisting them navigate healthcare services, um, and running a whole load of uh, groups and workshops that bring people who are socially isolated, undergoing financial distress, or just need some someone to help kind of build their resilience and and their sort of inner capacity to live a healthy and well-meaning life.
7: So tell us about the programs that you specifically work on.
6: Okay, well, we run quite a few programs. Um, All of them are programs with um, the notion of building somebody's capacity in mind. So we have a group called Phoenix, which is about people who are newly diagnosed. And that's usually a weekend workshop pre-COVID days um, of about sort of, as you can imagine, somebody being newly diagnosed even today can be quite a challenging um, situation for people to be in. So what we do is we get a group of people together, whether they're clinicians, other peers who've gone through similar experiences, um, and just a whole range of information about what to do, how to look after yourself, what treatments mean, where you can go for um, psychological help if you need it, or just where you can find a friend. We also run um, a group called PLDI, which is Positive Leadership Development Institute. Um, And that really is about, it's a weekend workshop again, about building your resilience and understanding um, how to challenge uh, a lot of the HIV stigma that people still face, um, and also to find a sense of self and building self-esteem. Many of our groups actually cater to a whole diverse group of uh, community members. Um, it's it can be men who have sex with men, but we also run a whole load of groups for heterosexual families, for children, uh, for families with children, um, individuals, and especially women as well. Um, so many of these groups can be modified to suit them. We run retreats for people for families, um, and we run a whole load of groups that we think really sort of bring people in when they're sitting on their own. Um, you know without any family or support so we have panic positive which is a quarterly monthly social catch-up and we also run something called the Christmas hampers which is something that we're so passionate about every year and that's uh, you know acknowledging that people are on their own usually at Christmas you know they may have been ostracized from family or they don't have a really strong support network and what we do is um we just deliver hampers at home to them. So it makes them feel that somebody is thinking of them and caring for them on that day.
7: So what's your favourite programme and why?
6: Oh, I knew you were going to ask me that. Um, do you know, it's always the new kid on the block, basically. Um, I think we get so passionate about the new programmes that we're, we're so privileged to be able to still develop because we get such support and good funding. Um, we we started a new programme called Peer Navigation, And that's a peer run program which um, actually addresses uh, the notion again of what it's like to be newly diagnosed. So we have a great relationship with a lot of the uh, GPs in Melbourne. And when somebody comes through their doors and is diagnosed as being positive, the first people they call is us after they've sorted out their treatments. And they basically have a peer to kind of help them navigate the whole, you know, the whole kind of, head game of um, you know medication support mental health and, and that's it's been a fantastic program we've been running it for two years it's evaluated really well and we've just now actually recruited another member to the team who's going to be looking particularly at supporting older people living with HIV because people living with HIV aren't a homogenous group of people. Everyone has different needs, you know, different expectations, different comorbidities. So that's basically my favourite at the moment. And I'm sorry if I insult anyone else.
7: <laughs> so it really sounds like the work that you do is focused on empowering people.
6: Absolutely. Um, it's building their capacity to take charge of their lives, to make the decisions that are right for them, to make um to make decisions about their support networks about what assistance they need um and you know we still live in a society where stigma and discrimination are real and ugly and you know visible but it's about giving people tools to actually challenge that you know to get the information right to have those conversations whether they're in your social groups or your family groups um to say well no th- this is this is what's true about hiv things like you equals you if somebody's on HIV treatment, and it's managed. You can have something called an undetectable viral load that stops you transmitting HIV sexually. So there's some amazing advancements that are used to build capacity for people with HIV. How would you
7: define empowerment beyond building capacity? Or is it very much about capacity only?
6: No, no, it's about building self-esteem. It's about building a strong voice. It's about being resilient in the face of adversity. It's, as I said, it's about taking charge, being in control of your life to make well-informed decisions with all the right information and all the right support.
7: And of course, that very much evolved out of uh, HIV/AIDS being uh, a pandemic in the eighties and early nineties, where you know people were very disempowered by stigma and also the medical system, and the community was very much about finding its voice and and being in charge of its own direction to kind of you know forge a path forward beyond that, beyond those constraints.
6: Absolutely, and those were grassroots movements that were led from the community um, and. You know, one of the mantras that sort of community organisations like I ha- ourselves have is nothing about us without us. Um, putting people with HIV at the forefront and at the centre of all decisions that are made about the community. Um, not somebody doing a top down approach where, you know, saying, well, this is what you're going to do. This is the medication we're going to allow you to have. This is about me, an eye centered approach. And we call that the meaningful involvement of people living with HIV where you are at a decision-making table um, about the impact of what um, any, you know, any structural or strategic decisions made about HIV. Do
7: you find that because of the advancements in medication and the fact that people aren't you know, dying like they were in the 80s and 90s, that the living with HIV community is often overlooked by the, by the LGBTIQ community in other communities and that that presents some
6: challenges? Absolutely. Um, it's actually twofold. Um, I think there's a, I hate using that word complacency, but I'd say there's almost an indifference that, you know, people are living longer with HIV. We've got amazing medication. Um, but it's the psychosocial stuff that still exists, you know, and that's what people always need to be aware of. S- discrimination still happens on a very frequent basis. Stigma, where, you know, as I said, you could be ostracized from family or social groups, and let's not even go down the path of sexual stigma. Um, so it's, it's what that has an impact on is like sort of diminishing the importance and the visibility of what HIV still is today, but also, you know, and I really, and this is being a really honest funding, you know, people don't necessarily see HIV as a cause anymore. You know, we, the sector is really underfunded. Um, and to be able to run programs, you know, so some of the ones that I've told you um, about, they still need support. They still need um, the longevity of like kind of long-term funding, Uh, to make them thrive and prosper and and as a result, you know, change the lives of people living with HIV.
7: You mentioned sexual stigma. I imagine that's an issue that people living with HIV raise a lot and it must have some particular challenges for women living with the virus in particular.
6: Absolutely Um, and, you know, many of the women, for them it's about choice or lack of sometimes and, you know, we have traditional notions of what women or mothers are like in families and, they're not necessarily front and center and priority sometimes when it comes to medication or seeking out assistance many of the women that we uh we deal with are also not financially independent and that has massive repercussions um for making somebody feel that they that they're worth anything there's a lot of stuff. Um, there's a lot of issues that are very particular to women um, as they are to older people living with HIV, young people living with HIV, and whether you're looking at heterosexuals or gay men living with HIV.
7: 3CR. You're listening to an interview with Susie Malhotra from Living Positive Victoria on 3CR's In Your Face. What are some of the most common challenges that people living with HIV are raising during the pandemic?
6: Oh, multiple. And um, I'd like to say that they're the same, but they're not. What they are is a lot more um, enhanced. So, we already dealt with a community of people with HIV who were socially isolated, who are uh, financially in, you know, financially distressed. You know, um, some people who have been living long for H- living longer with HIV are now in their sixties mm-hmm. and seventies. Um, are still living in social housing, um, still not able to work. Um, and yeah, you know, it becomes really hard to kind of feel part of a society when you don't have that privilege of their opportunity. What the pandemic has done is actually really exacerbated how lonely people are. Um, how people are really struggling, um, financially. Um, and you know, and we, we talk about the issues of domestic violence, you know, that, that kind of perpetrates some members of our community as well. So all our programs are really trying to be readapted and repurposed to kind of bring people more into the organisation. It might not be about face to face or being able to hold somebody's hand but it's still being able to pick up a phone and call somebody. I know we're all over zoomed and you know seeing our faces on our laptops but that still is a connection and that can still be done in a confidential and supportive way. So I would, I would definitely say that sort of money, financial distress, um, and social isolation are compounded at a time like this.
7: And I imagine, as you touched on before, that those issues are magnified for people who have been living with HIV long term. Can you tell us a bit more about the issues that they're raising during COVID?
6: So, um, for many of them, um, so we're looking at our older community of people with HIV, and this is like a community of over fifty. Uh, 50. Now, for these who, for these community members who've been living with <laughs> HIV for that long. There have been so many complications along their, their life history. And um, when medications came out, you know, there, there were some really awful meds around, you know, the ones that ended up giving people comorbidities. And we'd hear things about lipastrophy and uh, lipodystrophy, all, you know, all those things that seem from another bygone era. As people age with HIV, the complications become more complex. Um, so, you know, you could be living with heart disease or um, diabetes as well as managing your HIV. And many of our, you know, our older people living with HIV, they've lost so many friends along the way, you know, for those who were lucky to make it through the new regime of drugs, um, there were many who didn't. And that's a loss of community for many of the people we we work with. Um, And for them, you know, family may not be around. Many of them are socially isolated. Physically, they're, they're not able to get around and they may not be part of the tech savvy generation. You know, the, the things that worked well for us with um, certain members of our, our communities were, you know, sitting around having a cup of tea or just having a drink together and seeing somebody's face and having a warm embrace. Um, and those are really pointedly, um, you know, sort of lacking at the moment because we just can't do it
7: so the epidemics really compounding and and um and and highlighting and 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 expanding some really deeply entrenched grief and loss issues that people must have
6: absolutely and you know i hate to use that word but you know it it does remind people you know in a, almost like a trigger of you know a, a life that's gone before that was very similar you know, the being shut away at home, being not necessarily able to see people or be with friends when you're having a deep, dark moment. You know, that that's, that's revisiting something that, you know, we, we hope people never had to do again.
7: And I imagine as well if people do have physical symptoms from that regime of treatments that did, you know, have terrible impacts on their bodies, that also compounds the stigma and also then the mental health effects of that stigma.
6: They're all all intertwined. There's no that kind. There's cross sectionality that happens. You know, no one aspect of somebody's health and well being can ever be separated from the other issues that they're going through. Um, but you know, as as an organisation, we're really trying to work sort of with people holistically and find a way that you know that, that's very often led by you know, the person we're sort of dealing with about what works for them and to explore what's possible um, and how we can be more inclusive or how they can feel more engaged. Um, and these past six months, you know, we're all working from home, but we've done some amazing things, um, you know, to, to still maintain relationships with people when they can't see us, you know, physically. It's been great. Um, we have a couple of events that we run each year, like the Candlelight Memorial and World AIDS Day that have always been really big gatherings of people in public spaces. Um, But we ran a candlelight memorial online this year, and I think it was seen by over 500 people on the night. We had beautiful, heartwarming speeches. We had choruses singing. We had some great keynote speakers. And we're looking to see that again for World AIDS Day later this year.
7: Fantastic. So tell us, Susie, a bit about yourself and how you ended up in this amazing role at Living Positive Victoria.
6: Oh, this is going to be the bit that sounds really, doesn't sound as polished. Um, well, hopefully, as you can tell, um, I'm originally from the UK. My parents are Indian and um, they migrated to the UK, gosh, over 50 years ago. Um, and I was born there. Um, I was so fortunate because my parents packed me off to um a boarding school in India where I learned the language, I learned speak Hindi, very sound of music and lots of nuns there. <laughs> um and then um, I um I did there wasn't a career pathway into HIV. Um when I left school I I did a master's in business administration because every good Indian parent wanted their child to be, you know, a doctor, a lawyer or a businesswoman. Um, but I um I, I saw this opportunity to volunteer as an HIV organisation that needed somebody with uh, Hindi speaking skills to work with uh, people from the Indian subcontinent. Um, and that was just as a volunteer. Um, before I knew it, I got a job as an administ- administrator there, became the volunteer coordinator, and then made the big move to migrate to Australia about 20 years ago. And And as luck would have it, the first time I opened a newspaper... Um, I realized there was a job going at what was then the Victorian AIDS Council and the building was literally two doors away from where I was living at the time and I thought aha (laughs) that's that's a sign so I moved from the AIDS Council to people living with HIV AIDS Victoria as it was called then Um, did some volunteer work with them did some contract work with them and 15 years later I've now done seven different roles in that organization and
7: Wow. So it's all very serendipitous.
6: Yeah, I I have to say, and this is a sneaky one, my friends always ask me, um, as a heterosexual woman, how come you ended working in HIV when the epidemic was very much about men who have sex with men and gay men in the UK at the time? Um, And I came from a very strict family. My mother didn't like me having men as friends. (laughs) Um, So... I discovered that having gay men in my life was something that sort of never worried my mum and she was always reassured by the fact that my gay friends would bring me home safely at the end of the night and have always had the best intentions.
7: Wow okay so you've got a real connection with the gay community that's wonderful.
6: Yeah and you know I've lost so many friends over the years you know London at the time was a really terrible place to be in the 80s. With HIV, So, you know, I, it's, it's what you were saying about that community-driven moment, you know, those who are affected and those who are moved and those who are horrified by what they see, um, I think, build a collectivity that sort of spurs us to advocate for all the humanity of um, the cause.
7: And, of course, being a young person in the 80s in the UK with so many friends dying, that must have had an incredible impact on you emotionally but also on your world view as well.
6: Yeah, I think so, very much so. Um you know, it was like nothing I'd ever experienced. You know, I'm I'm so privileged. I come from a a very strong family network where I had every opportunity to gain an education, you know, to have a roof over my head, um, and to travel. Um but this made no sense at all, you know, to see strong, you know, amazing, creative, intelligent, academic um Beautiful people just inexplicably um, lose their lives, you know, through something that, yeah, and they had every reason to live because their lives are so amazing. Um, and, you know, I think it, it was a real insight into what's important in our lives and what we should fight for.
7: So the HIV-AIDS epidemic has clearly fuelled uh, and evoked a great sense of, of social justice in you.
6: Absolutely, absolutely. Um, my parents were so brilliant. They always encouraged me to um, do some voluntary work when I was as young as 15. Um, I used to work with autistic children. Um, I did a lot of work working with um, Southeast Asian women um, going through domestic violence, um, and then I guess I found my niche um, you know, working with Indian sort of communities affected by HIV and that kind of opened up my world. So, uh, yeah, my parents have always instilled a very, very strong sense of social justice. Um, And, you know, that's that's what makes me feel, I guess, privileged to be part of, that, you know, I'm in a position where I can bring people on board and we can fight for things that matter.
7: Susie Melhotra, thank you so much for talking to me today on 3CR. It's been an absolute pleasure.
6: Thank you so much, James. 3CR
9: The skin I sleep in Has taken one too many hits I'm barely breathing Can't find the light to let it in Now I'm not so sure I want to connected It's like my head is up in space Nearly perfected The lie I tell that I'm okay But I dread every day Oh It's all the things you say That make me wanna run away Oh It's everything you Makes me kind of scared for you Staring after the girls on the street
5: 3TR Community Radio 855 AM Isolated Quarantined Need some essentials but can't leave the house? Or just having a hard time dealing with everything at the moment? Queer Aid Nam is a new mutual aid group of organized volunteers. We're here, we're queer, and we've got your back. Whether or not that's how you identify, nobody should be suffering because capitalism or the state didn't provide what they needed. That's why we're working to strengthen our communities through solidarity. Put in a request for help and we'll match you with a volunteer in your area who can either pick up groceries or other essentials for you, help you run errands, cook meals for you, or check in with how you're going. If you or someone you know is having a hard time, or if you want to join the volunteer list, find us on QueerAidMelbourne.org or search for us via Facebook, COVID-19 Queer Aid NARM Melbourne. So tell your family and your friends, and don't forget your neighbours. That's QueerAidMelbourne.org, a 3CR supporter. If you're
0: wrestling with feelings of anxiety, worry, and depression, or finding the current social isolation measures hard to deal with, we would like to encourage you to call Wellways Helpline. Wellways Helpline is a volunteer support and referral service that provides information to people experiencing mental health issues or other disabilities, as well as their family, friends and carers. We're here to talk if you are seeking information about mental health or mental health services or just need someone to talk to. As a peer-based service, everyone working at Wellways Helpline has a lived experience of mental health issues or disability. Wellways Helpline is a national service and operates Monday to Friday, 9am to 9pm, excluding public holidays. If you feel it would be helpful to talk to someone about these issues during this difficult period, please call Wellways Helpline on 1300 111 500. That's 1300 111 500. Wellways supports 3CR.
1: And in celebration of International Bisexuality Day, which is today, the 23rd of September, I caught up with Sally Goldner on Monday to talk about the Stand By Us conference. We'll jump into that in a moment, but heads up, there are a whole bunch of different topics we cover here and a huge amount of puns. So I hope you enjoy as much as I did. Okay, so for our next interview, we have a 3CR broadcaster, actually, Sally Goldner. Um, and, extraordinaire. and we've caught you in a very exciting week, Sally. For the f- mm. last few days, you've been attending the Stand By Us conference focused on bi-plus communities and celebrating um, all things sort of LGBT plus community, but also International Bisexuality Day, which is coming up this Wednesday. Now, the conference ends on the 27th, this Saturday. But I was wondering, could you tell us a little bit about what's been going on and, yeah, what, what you've been involved with?
10: Well, um, yeah, gosh. Um, how long have we got? No, seriously, it, is, it has been a wonderful experience thus far. Mm-hmm. And there's, you know, at the time of our conversation, um, there's plenty more to come. And overall, there's just been, I'm someone who feels energy very, very strongly, and the sense of BiPlus connectedness has just been enormous. So I'm going to say right off the bat, I feel the most powerful I ever have in my BiPlus identity. And it's just incredibly moving and cathartic mm-hmm. overall. So what's brought that about? There's been a range of events, a wonderful opening plenary, which will be going up on YouTube, um, Very, um, if if it isn't by the time of um, this airing, mm-hmm. um, you know, with Sherry Eisner, a fantastic Middle Eastern um, intersectional advocate, including Bi-Plus, and that was just intersectionality hooray nice. uh, on so many angles, as um, Sherry can do. Um, we've also had fun events Um which um, included Biconic, which I think will st- we'll still be streaming on Facebook on the Biconic page. They were fortunate that that was physically in Sydney. You could have a few people at the Giant Dwarf venue as well as live streaming, nice. which was sensational, <laughs> and just some amazing, talented biplus performers. Um, and there's also been, um, there, and there has to be puns in this, there has been a panel on all things pansexual. <laughs> there is <laughs> also... There's also a prize. There's a $100 hares and hyenas voucher for the best pun of the entire conference, which is (laughs) exciting. Um, And also, I suppose... You're
1: like leaning into the the puns rather than trying to avoid them, just fully accepting, embracing
10: them. We embrace all of our bi-plus intersectionality. (laughs) Um, you know, and we're still we're still waiting for that um, research grant that proves the genetic linkage between biplus and punning. But um, I think the <laughs> anecdotal evidence is strong enough to get us through for now. Um, there's been um, a by cuppa. Um, there's been um, events for, um, for say buy and craft, buy and gardening. There's been a biplus plus improv event, and um, happening. Again, as soon to happen, as we're about to recording, they'll be on the more advocacy um, sort of side, the BiPlus Plus community's experience of the postal survey, I almost feel like saying content warning. We do have to look at the serious stuff, stuff on by plus and consent, mm-hmm. um, um, family violence, including intimate partner violence. And please, if even the mention of that is triggering, please contact services like QLife, including Switchboard on 1800 184527. But there's just been such a plethora of bi-plus life um, on so many events, 37 events, which has just been phenomenal.
1: Absolutely. And Fantastic. I
10: was, uh, Fantastic. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and I was going to ask whether um, certain sessions were being recorded. Now, just to get this right, the conference is open to anyone queer questioning that falls under the umbrella of, I suppose, yeah, LGBT+, plus. is that correct?
10: Yeah, it's certainly open to anyone, just as long as you're respectful to obviously the presenters and the session and whatever's going on so you don't have to identify under the bi plus umbrella you can be queer you can be a well cisgender a heterosexual gay lesbian ally cisgender endosex all that sort of thing Mm. Um, just as long as if you want to come along and learn to be a better ally by picking um joining in one of the sessions that's a really good thing so for example declaring my interest as one of the panelists in the stand by your bi session on family violence if um, mental health professionals and social workers want to come along and you know learn about issues there and how they can give more inclusive service. That's certainly welcome. So yeah and in terms of recording the more panel type of so- sessions and the opening and closing plenary will be recorded but the more discussion group chatty ones like the craft one or whatever won't be and also some, um, some things that are more personal and also um, apart from one moment, which will be explained in the closing plenary, no participant um, will have their face um, shown on a screen without permission. Um, you know, that's that's for sure. So yes, yeah, certainly it's a safe way to engage um, with your bi plus community and get that sense of connection. If you are bi plus, or if you're someone who identifies, to keep it simple, as attracted to one gender, monosexual, uh, come along and learn and be uh, be be an ally.
1: I think it's such, a, um, it's such a fantastic vibe because I've, I've had a look at the website. So there's a website for Stand By Us, which I'll put in the rundown, obviously. Um, and there's just such a wonderful kind of let's just talk everything by plus uh, kind of huge umbrella. And it's kind of it goes from there. So I was wondering, how did this come about? Because obviously um, International Bisexuality Day is, you know, quite relatively new, 1999. And I know this, is, this conference is a bit bigger than that, but it's centered around Sort of Wednesday. Um, yeah, how did, it, how did it come about?
10: Well, it seems that a couple of people were talking around only two or three months ago about, oh, well, particularly in these times, we need to do Celebrate Buy Day mm-hmm. to give that sense of connection. And then started talking, I think it was started with um, two fab um, people who did great work for Buy Plus Community Perth, Misty Farquhar and Duke Dow. And then they were saying, maybe it would be good if we checked in with people in other states so we they can have their event on such and such a day and then it went to, and they can have it on so-and-so a day. Mm. And then it was, let's take this bigger and we really need the connection. And then, you know, we brought in some people from New Zealand. We wanted to try for Oceania but we didn't quite get the connection in the short space of time mm. and, in all, all honesty, felt it would have been tokenistic to call it Oceania or Australasia. Or something like that. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll look, home. we hope there will be a next time, but just not quite at the moment. We're enjoying it. Yeah. Um, but certainly, certainly, we would love to do that and do it properly with true inclusivity in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it just sort of came together very quickly, and there it was. And there were just so many people popping their hands up with event ideas 37 events over, mainly from Friday the 18th through to the 23rd but there are two events um, in Brisbane and Perth on the coming weekend um, just to celebrate further um, but we, we put them into that bulk of about five days and it's just been phenomenal um, the sense of connection and community amongst the Organising team has just been absolutely beautiful, and um, it has come together. Has it been perfect? Probably not. There had to be tech hitches with um, captioning and things like that, but we have sorted them after a couple, after a session or two, and now it's um, just rocketing along. And yeah. there's just so much information. And there will be also a YouTube channel um, with um, the, the panels as well um, in due course as well, which is just being finalised probably literally as we have this conversation.
1: <laughs> well, I found it amazing because it's, um, you know, a few months for a national effort, basically, or an inter, you know, with, with New Zealand as well. Um, and, and you've put a collection of workshops, panels, discussion groups, all that sort of stuff together um, with some amazing speakers that's having a look at the lineup. What has been your highlights thus far and what are you kind of looking forward to or would recommend as kind of upcoming sessions?
10: Oh, goodness. Um, <laughs> I mean, look, um, how do I, you know, I could just sort of do the finger at random here on the printed out program. So Tuesday, I'll actually, there's, you know, at the time will this will go to air, but um, we will have a conference close, which will hopefully bring everything together and I think give people some hints. I think that one of the things that can happen with conferences, is there's all this sort of energy and then it dissipates. So we hope to put out a report afterwards that we'll send to anyone who registered for an event. And you can pass that on to health professionals, that sort of thing. But in terms of the panels that are, I believe are going to be recorded, um, one is bye-bye binaries, binary busting for inclusive organisations. I'm all for that. And mm-hmm. um, there's also, and I think this one will be um, just recorded. Play by play, a discussion about bi-plus inclusivity in sport. Um, they won't be recorded, but um, in the same time as what would have been the monthly Bi Alliance Victoria discussion group, there's going to be an Australia and New Zealand wide bi-plus discussion group, which I understand will have 40 has 40 people registered. Um, so there's just been everything. There's been storytelling politics of attachment, bonding. There's, as I said, improv games. There was um, events put on by the fabulous Brie and iconic in Sydney. Mm. How, I really can't pick a bylight. Um, you know, it's just been, it's been <laughs> too huge.
1: And I, I suppose I wanted to get your thoughts. Now, you Like, obviously, as you said, during COVID, there's a huge need for connection, um, mm. more so than ever, but also just around the significance and the importance of the day. Um You know, we can hear a lot of, like, international days, international day of pie, international day of pasta or something like that. Yeah. But this stands out as, like, one of the important ones and I wanted to just get your thought on why it continues to be so significant, especially during times of COVID but also in the norm.
10: Well, yeah, look, pies and pasta, we do need our carbs. um, (laughs) That's fair. All the same, um, you know, I think that the BiPlus community historically has had such a sad sense of erasure and invisibility mm. and what we're finding for any um, community that prior to COVID faced, I'll say negativity, and by that I include marginalisation, discrimination, stigma, that that inequity has been stretched and exaggerated mm. throughout the whole um, COVID situation and the ver- and lockdowns and less contact and all those things. So this has just been, it's had that double bonus of being so timely in bringing us together at a time where there has been too much isolation Mm. um, to bring us together both short-term and long-term in that way. It's had a double win and in that sense has been, i 'm going to have to do it binormous um, <laughs> they 're going to keep coming for us a um, lot until you cut the cut the record button but <laughs> but it, i I think you can feel my excitement uh, mm. at this. It has really brought us together there's been beautiful comments in some sessions where someone you know disclosed a negative experience in the chat while a session was running the people who immediately spoke up and said, that's really awful, we're here for you. Mm. It has just been uh, really, really powerful and empowering and healing. Um, and, you know, so there's been a lot of it and as not very much needed in this time. And I just think this will be a landmark, mm. um, you know, sort of. And we also managed to dig out from... what was to our knowledge the 1st BiPlus conference in australia in 1992 some um objectives that they set afterwards and i think that this will be a great um landmark in achieving some of those and going further with them it's just in the ultra long term it's huge as well it's just yeah um it really is quite emotional um and Mm. i'm quite and i'm obviously very happy about that
1: (laughs) absolutely and i mean just touching on that that It is interesting you said invisibility and erasure because um, Gigi Raven, one of the people who started International Bisexuality Day back in 1999, um, said that, you know, the bisexual community has grown in in so many ways, but we are still very largely invisible. Mm. And I wanted to talk about that both on a society level and sometimes with uh, bisexuality and things like that being also hidden in the um, LGBT plus community as well. And just get your thoughts on some of the hidden nature and the the challenges still facing the community, I suppose.
10: Yeah, look, um, there is this tendency to think, oh, because it is, and I'll only talk, say, parts of Australia here, oh, it's somewhat better now for gay and lesbian because we've got Mm. gay marriage, inverted commas, sick. Um, Bi is better off as well. No, there are, um, sadly, too much information on, uh, is too much information on the worst mental health outcomes. And sadly, sometimes that happens because of, outright lateral hostility from yeah. elements of gay and lesbian you know get off the fence make up your mind you don't yeah. exist all those horrible things and it's sad that they have to come up but they are there and you know it's interesting I read a report recently on diversity in corporate workplaces and I think there was a line in it that said well gay lesbian gay and bi has got plenty of attention Ah, yeah. um, there hasn't been to my knowledge you know the percentage of funding to buy specific projects is at asterisk level um, according to the research i've seen um, there's been some work done um, by um via the um by five project which is a buy audit tool which um, has just been completed in partnership of bisexual alliance victoria melbourne bisexual network and drummond street services um, which we would hope to start initiating um, in the next few months particularly as we emerge from lockdown into the fresh air again. Um, mm-hmm. but also just by um, with total coincidence um, about a week ago the state government released a report which I'll pop that link through to you Thanks which is the a major population wide survey for Victoria and of mm-hmm. the sexual orientation identification of what I'll call LGBTQ. I plus is now around 50% of the rainbow communities in terms of sexual orientation. So I think that that proves once and for all that, you know, this idea that bisexuals don't exist has to go the way of the proverbial dodo and not before time. Mm. And I think that that will give us enormous strength going forward as well.
1: Absolutely. And I mean, I suppose something I'm very excited to not only get onto that, um, that link that you're going to send me, but also the audit tool and things like that. Because I think one of the beautiful things about this conference, apart from celebration and all that sort of stuff, is the collection of tools and resources. And the Stand By Us conference has a list of resources for people to look at if they're interested, paired with, you know, recordings from the YouTube on YouTube and stuff like that. It's just going to be a wonderful um, celebration but also like collection of all these different tools and resources for people so that's really exciting
10: yeah oh look it is and I think we'll find that one of the things as we become more connected both in Australia and around the world and I found this um, for the trans community as well is that we can I think we all know what we need now and by by plus people it is Visibility, making sure research separates out LG and B. And similarly, for trans people, we could, you know, we've worked out the priorities, their documents, health care and so on. Mm. And I think now we're at a point clearly of what's working. And if we can share the resources and one person doesn't have to reinvent one bit of a wheel but can build a better wheel, then that's going to be exciting as well. And I think that, you know, with all the information we've learnt out of this, um, there'll be plenty of that and we can definitely have um, all the spokes of the bywheel wheel um, you know, sort of <laughs> shining through after this. I, you know, I think, you know, it's going to take work. What is it? Uh, got to put the effort in and persist. But I, I think that, um, you know, from this conference there will be a lot of momentum to do lots of things coming forward and, um, you know, keep that uh, momentum going.
1: Well, i got to say your excitement is infectious. Thank you so much, Sally, for coming on and talking to me about this. Um, and by the time this goes to air, it'll be International Bisexuality Day. So celebration. Yay. Yep.
10: <laughs> celebration, um, as we like to say, by fives. And I'm still working on the pan equivalent. Um, if people want to vote on pan slams or pan slaps, um, go for that as well. Um, most of all celebrate multi-gender attraction Um, just want to say to all the bi plus people you you are totally okay in your um, sexual and romantic orientation as who you are regardless of any label or no label at all have a big celebratory day and um, of course September 2030 if I have it right this was the anniversary of Freddie Mercury's birthday so drag it up as well if you like to
1: (laughs) (laughs) well thank you so much Sally
10: thanks Edwin
3: Toast and marmalade It's sweet but bitter But it's all cool Just go kiss her But you're so nice That none of us think twice You could've been more subtle You could've been more subtle I smell
7: are you mob. Kutcher Edwards here. I just want to send out a message to you all. To stop the spread of COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus, it is advised that you keep 1.5 metres away from each other. Follow rules on social gatherings. Wash your hands when appropriate and stay home if you're feeling sick or unwell. But most of all, keep strong and stay safe. And of course, keep listening to 3CR Community Radio to keep connected to the community. We'll get through this and hope to see you real soon. Bye.
4: Fitzroy Legal Service has launched a free information and advice phone service for people who have been stopped, questioned, fined or charged for breaching the new COVID-19 restrictions. Have you been fined or charged under the new laws? Or stopped and questioned by police for being outside? Call 0434 136 501. Weekdays between 9am and 5pm. That's 0434 136 501. Or head to fitzroy-legal.org.au for more information. You can also report incidents at covidpolicing.org.au. Fitzroy Legal Service is a 3CR supporter.
1: You're listening to 3CR. It is the time for Tram Thoughts. And this week's focus will be on lawns. So as an outlier, we're talking about domestic lawns, suburban lawns. The green. um, The green things,
8: yes.
1: (laughs) This Tram Thoughts was inspired by a post on a Facebook group I follow called New Urbanist Memes for Transit-Orientated Teens. Very appropriate for Tram Thoughts. Um, And probably you've heard Rob Rob or I refer to it as NumTop. And the post was highlighting that lawns are a symbol of classism and that really we should get, away, get rid of them all together and replace them with something more sustainable and more um, practical, I suppose. So I thought this tram Thoughts could be a dual-pronged activity where we explore whether that is a valid argument and, two, we can muse over some alternatives. Huh. So starting from kind of a natural perspective, uh, I had a look into it, and lawns are definitely not healthy at all. They rely on highly artificial and kind of, you know, constant maintenance, whether that's fertilizing, et cetera, et cetera. And they can be detrimental to the garden's health, which relies on weeds and, you know, mushrooms and complex kind of biodiversity going on. So They're
2: they're a monoculture. Essentially, that's what a lawn is, is to be a monoculture.
1: Exactly, exactly. So from a natural perspective already, we've kind of got this – bit of a logical, you know, illogical kind of situation with lawns. But, Rob, coming from an urban design perspective, and I know this is your thing, I wanted to get your idea of what green why, – what is the significance of green spaces first off and then what's the benefit of lawns in that kind of lens?
2: Hmm. I mean, if you go historically of why – we have greenery in cities. It actually comes from the Industrial Revolution. Mm-hmm. And so that was in an era when there was so much smoke and pollution and sort of mess and noise in the cities. And so that led to a significant movement called the Garden City Movement, which was all about spaced housing, you know, big green spaces, lawns, all that kind of stuff. So I guess historically, and I guess I would say personally, lawns mm-hmm. and green spaces generally within cities. They're kind of like they're the breathe-in of your day. Like that's the time when you kind of take a break from the hustle and bustle of what's around you. Um, So I I guess there are like obviously many benefits of lawns, things like biophilia and sort of uh, there's a lot of research about when you look at greenery, it improves your concentration, your mental health also reduces um, urban heat Island effect within cities where there's so much concrete and glass and that heats up the city. So there is definitely a benefit towards it. But, yeah, there, there are definitely things about lawns, which I guess we can unpack later, that I do find quite challenging.
1: Mm. Well, I was wondering, that's, that's the thing, I was wondering if this kind of biophilia, you know, love of green extends to lawns. But then again, I think a lot of us see lawns as a massive burden and something that we've got to kind of watch out for. And this links into the historical origins of of the lawn which i spent my saturday researching (laughs) so lawns were first cultivated in the 16th century for english and french aristocrats there had been naturally occurring lawns these were like often forest clearings or things like that or common grounds but they were first artificially cultivated in the 16th century or at least that's where we start to really see them emerge and it took what was a naturally occurring phenomenon and basically replicated out the front of these you know big estates and mcmansions as a symbol of status so it was kind of like you know i can afford to have this luscious luscious carpet of green that's beautifully maintained and as such it was seen as this like pristine idealistic you know kind of sublime greenery that you had the labor to look after
2: well it also actually ties into a movement called the picturesque movement which was this obsession for things that look natural but are anything but. Like, I guess a Melbourne example would be the Botanic Gardens. Like, beautiful place as it is, it is not at all wild. It's, you know, everything is very curated and planned, and it's all about, you know, you go up a hill and that reveals another vista, and it's, it's very manicured. But um, the picturesque movement was obsessed with, like, follies and, like, castles looking like they're crumbling, even though sometimes they're built for that purpose, but it's to give this illusion of time and things sort of ageing.
1: Absolutely. And it's the, I think that you bring it up really perfectly there. It's the obsession of control. Mm. It's that sort of like, this is going to be picture perfect, but like everything's going to be so heavily manicured to, to ensure its perfection. Uh, it's, it's quite bizarre. It's quite a bizarre movement. So... Looking then to the Industrial Revolution and kind of, yeah, the, the boom of lawn popularity, um, we have the invention of the first lawnmower, which drastically opens up access to lawns because basically it means that you can do your own lawn trimming and you don't need to have expensive labor to, you know, scythe it all away for you. However, it still kind of had this class, this sort of um, ability in the fact that you had to own the technology to do it. And we see throughout that movement that they, become, they, get quite, they get a lot bigger in popularity, and you also have rise of games like golf and things like that, which also promote this lawn experience. But in the more contemporary sense, Lawn's Day we have uh, today, we are ultimately the product of America in the 20th century. And especially it's, it's the result of the work of a dude called Abraham Levitt who famously post-wards made a huge construction empire in the US and created Levittown, which was the American ideal suburb and has been replicated throughout the country in these kind of cookie cutter um, little suburban homes that follow like a very similar pattern. And one of, the, one of the most notable features or one of the most notable patterns was this inch and a half tall, neatly edged garden lawn in fact levitt's actually gone on record to say no single feature of a suburban residential community contributes as much to the charm and beauty of the individual home and the locality as as much as well-kept lawns so he was all about lawns
8: <laughs>
1: and through him and also other um urban designers like people like the um, i can't remember the guy's name but the guy who um, made central park in america and stuff like that it was kind of like this huge popularized thing. And we already know that through the rollout of suburbs in America, there was this idea of conformity, this idea of pristine, this idea of the nuclear family, and it very much fit the American dream image. And I think we've imported that heavily in Australia. So that brings us to the question of classes. Well, we've already established it doesn't serve a natural function. And historically, it's got got a pretty strong history of being only something that the wealthy can really afford to do. Rob, you're part of the same meme page, and I'm sure you've seen. Um, I'm sure you've kind of seen this argument before. What hallmarks of contemporary classism do you feel are present in lawns today?
2: Um, I guess two points. Mm-hmm. One of them, on a more silly point, is I feel like it induces a sort of competition between households of you know the nicer lawn, which mm-hmm. one's one and a half inches or not. Um, but I guess on a more serious note, the thing that I find interesting about lawns is the sense of sharing in how uh, a system or you know an urban form like Australia and a lot of other Anglo countries is less parks but more private park space mm. and I guess what I'm personally more interested in is moving away this having this idea of if we all combined our small bit of lawn together to create something bigger and perhaps more natural would that not be of more benefit because it's kind of like having everyone having a little bit, it's kind of less meaningful than everyone having a large bit sharing it together. And then as a result, it's beautiful. Like the other day I was walking through Royal park and you know, that's a beautiful space to be through being, It's all very many parts of it are natural or more natural. And so I just, I like that idea of people kind of piling all their green spaces together to create something that's bigger and better than an individual.
1: Well, I mean, you're jumping to my next question, but I'll quickly make, I think what's really interesting about this idea of individual and competition, I think it's one of those tasks which neoliberalism thrives off because it kind of isolates you to your individual household. And all of a sudden you have this really arbitrary task of mowing the lawn every month that becomes of utmost importance. And this is where I think we see like a lot of the classism emerge in some ways is that idea of, you know, maintenance and cost. You've got to fertilize, aerate, water. And, you know, if you want a perfect lawn, you've got to get that that fake stuff. Like And you've got to maintain it constantly. So that's a cost. There's also um, policing. So, you know, messy overgrown lawns are commonly a symbol of disarray and dysfunctionality. And I think especially in the media, you know, when we see a low income family, often one of the media tropes is that their front yard is always overgrown and stuff like that and more insidiously is kind of this is how lawns are kind of weaponized in some ways against neighborhoods so there are such things as yard standards and property regulations and um, one person i was reading was actually arguing that this allows neighborhoods to use the carceral state as a means of physically and financially excluding folks from their communities so you know if you're a renter if you have to live up to certain expectations and all that you can kind of find yourself a bit policed by how your lawn presents so then, yeah, I suppose, building on this idea of like what you've brought up with um, collective green spaces, the question is, what else could we do with the lawn? Mm. Um, a few options I've come across which I thought might be interesting, and I'll, I'll run past you and get your thoughts. The first one of which is combining our lawns and purposing them towards being something close to a uh, edible garden so this is a genre of permaculture which encourages you to build from dirt up um edible and usable plants and encourages weeds encourages lots of local stuff but that's that's one way of doing it so in my mind i've got an idea of suburban lawns being somewhere where you can actually eat fruit and that sort of you know plum trees um, and interestingly enough, actually, that's kind of what 16th century lawns were in the beginning because they were often made out of things like chamomile or thyme, so a bit of a hark back to tradition or subversion of tradition. Mm. The second thing I was wondering is what if you spent – if lawns are going to be a put-aside thing that, you know, often – can sometimes be regulated by councils if that's your nature strip or you know your lawns what if you make it a space designated for the effort of conservation so indigenous plants and that sort of you know really concentrated area to get the localized plants that should be growing there rather than you know this clear-cut perfectly oriented lawn so those are those are two kind of ideas my final one and this actually kind of harks to what you're saying rob is returning to the historical. Um, idea of lawns before the aristocrats of the 16th century the word lawn actually comes from the middle english word lund which means glade or opening in the woods and they're often places where which were village common areas so meadows or shed or held in land. Uh, sorry held in common land where villagers would graze their sheep and cattle and stuff like that so that idea of collective shared spaces, we could return to literally its first historical origins in that idea of making it somewhere for the commons and, you know, making your front yard somewhere for the community. So thoughts on those options?
2: Yeah, well, it's a very Australian and Anglo thing the house to be very private and guarded off from the street. Whereas if you walk through the streets of, say, Amsterdam or somewhere in the Netherlands, you'll often find that the houses are pretty close up to the border and the windows are huge and you can look straight into the living room. And it's not, you know, it's polite not to look into the living room, but there's a sense of houses flow onto the street a bit more. Mm. And so I guess in Australia, and if we were to push it to where it could be hypothetically, you know, maybe many generations or hopefully not generations of change, um, the lawn's kind of almost an ideal space for having that feeling of, you know, like no one ever really sits on their front lawn and enjoys mm. space. Partly because there's cars passing and what have you, but there's a sense of it's, it's in some ways the least useful part of a house. And I think in some ways it'd be the most beautiful if everyone was on their front lawn more, and you sort of mm. saw your neighbours as you walked by, and mm. you know you invite people in onto your lawn, and so it, it it sort of becomes that sort of semi-public, semi-private space. If we're working with what we already have built in our cities today. So that would be something I would like to see more of.
1: I've got to say, absolutely. I think the front yard, I have a theory that the front yard is the most useless part of the house because people never want to be out in the front yard because they'll be seen.
8: Mm.
1: And as you said, we have this massive bashfulness about being seen. Like, you know, how your kids and you have the water pistol fight, like you never have it in the front yard because you're running around, you're being crazy. And it's just, there's such unused spaces and yet they're so heavily maintained. So I think, I think yeah, I think it'd be wonderful if we can kind of overcome this sort of social contract we've written ourselves into of requiring the perfectly manicured lawn. Mm. Let the daisies grow. And yeah, find a way to like even looking at something like America where they have, you know, a lot of um uh, patio sort of culture where you know you sit out on the patio and you talk to your community as people walk past and you know your community and stuff like that.
2: Or sitting on the fire escape stairs or things. Sitting like. on
1: Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know, could you put a could you put some sort of Could you put some sort of picnic space in the front of your lawn? I don't know. Mm -hmm. But um it'd definitely be interesting. I think it's definitely a space I think it's definitely a space for some innovation.
8: It's a lot of potential (laughs)
1: there. Yeah. So with that in mind, I will I will actually link what I did mention with the edible gardens and the um and also a list of um indigenous plant nurseries actually in Melbourne for people interested. But i don't know i I like especially i think for me i definitely like the idea of edible gardens and making your lawn somewhere that's like you've got fruit trees and 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 that sort of thing growing and encouraging weeds that you can like chicory and stuff Mm. um yeah thank you for joining me on this tram thoughts and i hope everyone looks at their lawn tonight and thinks "Hmm, what could i innovate on what
2: could i do differently
1: (laughs) what could i do differently
4: You can take the front seat, I don't mind it I'll be in the back while you're driving Thinking about the things we could have said It's a little too soon if I'm honest You've broken on the things that we promised Did you forget those things you said? As far as I can tell it's All you never wanted You always fucked me up And act like you don't know it And I've still got your shirt From the night that we took it too far Do you think about me still? Do you think about me still? When he's lying next to you The way I used to do Think about me still All those nights we'd be driving Getting things off our mind Music that we can't live. Too young to drink but we did it anyway Suddenly saying things we never say. Does he make you feel the same? As far as I can tell He's all you never wanted You always fucked me up And I like you don't know it And I've still got you shirt From the night that we took it too far Do you think about me still? When he's lying next to you The way I used to do Do you think about me still? Do you think about me still? Still, 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 still Do you think about me still? Still, 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 still Think about you still. Think about you still. Think about you still. Oh, and I know I'll You're
9: listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet. www.3CR.
7: Friends of the Earth Food Co-op is open. Get fresh produce and support local farmers and keep our grassroots community thriving through these unusual times. Organic veggie boxes and click and collect now available. Visit www.foefood.org slash click collect to place your orders. Or pop in store at 312 Smith Street and see how we're adapting with our new physical distancing layout. Shop organic and buy local. Made easy at Friends of the Earth. A proud 3CR supporter.
2: coming up to the end of the show and so just before we were doing a bit of a tram thought discussion about the lawn and maybe starting to reconsider how the lawn could be used differently like maybe it's more shared we use it for edible gardens grow more native plants yeah there's a lot we can do on that like what we both agree as the least productive part of all of our homes really
1: Mm -hmm absolutely absolutely and early on the show we celebrated uh today's date the 23rd of september which is international bisexuality day um it's only a new day it's only been around since 1999 and it's been amazing to talk to sally goldner and learn about how this day is just continually developing and supporting and celebrating community uh and yeah she talked to us about the stand by us conference which i'll also have linked in our rundown um unfortunately it has ended it's great to look back on and see all the resources that they, um, they provided throughout it. Yeah, so that's pretty exciting.
2: And so before us, we have Earth Matters, and next up we have Stick Together. So stick around for Stick Together, and we'll see you <laughs> in week.